Good morning, I'm Michelle Galora. Our reading is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Thanks, Johnny. Cursed is and it's uh, it is really good tree. to be here with so you this Christ morning Jesus, as I am in this Abraham, new role and beginning to, to just get so to know the parishes of our diocese. It's enjoyable when you can actually show up in person as you're enjoying being in person with one another uh, more frequently these days, and just to get a feel for what is the rhythm of this space and what is the mission that's unfolding uh, before us. So I'm glad to be here. Uh, um, so you can either thank or curse Johnny, I guess, for helping get me here uh, by way of the, the new role. Um, but I'm, I'm delighted to be in it and curious, really, about what God will do with us over the years, like what will happen. So with that said, let's begin to think about the text uh, this morning. So you're looking, you're in the midst of this Galatian study, and I was thinking this morning as I was driving in of a pretty relatively well-known C.S. Lewis comment that he makes in Mere Christianity where he simply observes that the struggle of humanity, when we think about all that's wrong in our world and all the brokenness that we experience in our world, he says that what fell into the human heart at the very beginning of history was this lie that it is possible to discover a happiness that does not include God. He says, the problem with that lie is that God can't actually give you what doesn't exist. There is no life, really, outside of the very presence of God. And Lewis goes on to say that the awful history of the world, if you begin to think about all of the hard and unjust and troubling aspects of human life, whether you're thinking about it internal to your own selves, right, the kinds of relational struggles we face in marriage and in family or in your life as a student, you know, we're bumping into one another and we experience the pain of human selfishness quite often, actually, don't we? Or if you're thinking about more global trauma, more global sort of spaces across the space of human history and the history of war, the history of politics, the history of uh, sort of racism, the history of ethnocentrism, the history of genocide, and we could just go on and on and on about all of the ways in which human life 
is so obviously not what it ought to be. Lewis says it all stems from that lie that fell into the human heart. And when I think about the book of Galatians, the letter of, to the Galatian church, one of the things that becomes quite apparent is that Paul is wrestling with what does that lie look like in the context of the church, right? Now, it's easy for us to think, well, people outside of the church, people that aren't believers or followers of Jesus, of course they struggle with that. But Galatians is a profoundly humbling letter because it tells us it's not just people out there that struggle with that, but we continue to struggle with it, right? What does the great hymn say? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. And that is the story of our lives. We live in that tension, and it's painful, and it's difficult. And Paul, in this particular letter, is writing about the unique way in which this struggle manifests itself in a moment of the Christian church when there are both Jews and Gentiles in it, and we've learned all kinds of lessons, as you've been learning through your study of Galatians, that God has made a way for all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, Gentiles included, to come into the very presence of God once again and without having to pass through conversion to Israel first. And Paul is concerned that the church of his moment, this very Gentile church, is losing sight of the import of what's happened in the person of Jesus that makes their life possible. And Galatians begins to take us into that, and this text particularly helps us begin to think about that in the context even of our own lives, I think. So three things this morning I'd like to sort of chew on with you or think about with you are some words that arise in this text, bewitched, blessing, and belief. So bewitched, um, verses 1 to 5. Paul simply begins, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes Christ was portrayed as crucified. And then he goes on in this part of the text, right, to elaborate the reality of their experience. They've been experiencing the life of the Spirit. They've experienced miracles in the life of the Spirit. They've experienced the blessing of God overflowing in their midst. And he simply says, was it because of law or because of faith? How did you get here? So would you start one way but then end up going back into an older way or a different way? Paul sees that the Galatian church is adrift. It is bewitched, which is this image or this idea of the way in which they've come under the spell of the lie that it's possible to have a happiness that doesn't include God. And yes, I know we're talking about the way they were using the Old Testament Scripture. We're talking about the Old Testament law, law that God had in fact given but it wasn't, they weren't taking into account the next chapter of Revelation, right? The unveiling of the Word made flesh, the promise of God that became a person in our world and the person of Jesus. So Paul is pushing on them to think about where's their heart vis a vis Jesus? Are you letting go of him? Blaise Pascal observed that the heart has its reasons that reason knows not of. I like that quote because I studied sociology for a while, and there's a famous sociologist who took that quote from Pascal, and he used it to sort of think about something like out of English society in the celebration of the coronation. Why is it that English persons, right, sort of surround and sort of rally around the queen in that great moment of Elizabeth's coronation, and he says, the heart has its reasons that reasons knows not of. 
The heart is always seeking to manifest its identity, to understand its identity, to sink its roots in some identity. Do you ever know the tension that you've experienced in your life between things that you think about and know to be true and yet the way you're actually living life? There's discontinuity sometimes of the way we live life. The heart has its reasons. Do you know the reasons of your own heart? Do you know the attachments of your own heart? When we speak of faith, that's what we're talking about, the attachment of the heart. Every addict knows this tension. Last week, you spoke or looked at that part of the letter where Paul reminds you of his interactions with Peter when Peter's own heart was adrift from this gospel. And here he wants the the Galatians themselves to wonder and to become curious about the ways in which they are also under a spell. Jesus crucified is the gift of God for the world, and it is in Him that we encounter the extravagance and the substance of His promised mercy and grace, in which Jesus brings an end to all that is wrong within us and within our world. And this action of God is only accessed by faith. It's an attachment of the heart fixed on the beauty and the grace of His gift to us so that we open our deepest selves up to God and what He's giving us in the person of Jesus. And then we become persons who are inhabited by the Holy Spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This renewal of relationship. There's... Here's the thing about the Galatian church. They knew the truth of that. They had experienced the truth of that. And now they seem adrift, away from Jesus, coming under the sway of teachers from a segment of Judaism that are trying to say, we've got to go back to Torah. We've got to get back to the law. Bewitched. What is the lie or what is the truth in your heart that anchors you in this world by which you try to discover a sense of worthiness or happiness or identity? In so many other words, we could attach to that idea. Second, promise and blessing. In verses 6 to 9, Paul takes us very specifically to the story of Abraham. So he's been sort of getting the Galatians to think about experientially, what's life been like for you? as you've gotten near the church or as you've gotten near Jesus. Here he says, well, let's think about Scripture. Let's think about the story of a historical figure, a very important one, Abraham. And he wants us to understand that faith precedes law, even in the life of Abraham, that Abraham was sort of made right with God and brought into this experience of the promise of God's blessing by faith, not works of the law. The theologian Robert Jensen has a wonderful little book called A Theology and Outline. It's actually a series of lectures that he gave when he was uh, teaching an undergraduate course at Princeton University. And so it's richness for someone like me as a pastor who sort of lives in this weird world of theology and reading what theologians write and how they talk and all that strange lingo is that he just breaks it down in the most plain ways. And he asked this simple question, you know, what is, what is the God of the Bible like? And he just makes this beautiful observation, he's talkative. <laughs> that when you look at the God of the Bible, sort of, you just pick up the story wherever, God is always striking up a conversation with humanity. 
In the story of Israel's history, Abraham is that first person that God strikes up a conversation with, and he calls him, if you remember his story, to leave his father's household and follow him, right? Out of this space of idolatrous worship, living under the lie, bewitched, to living under the watchful and loving presence of God who will journey with him. Now, Abraham's story is a mess, but he's called to engage the conversation that God is actually having with him in the world, and he does that by faith. And so Paul wants us to understand that Abraham was called by God, and it had nothing to do with the works of the law. It had everything to do with Abraham hearing that which God was saying and then responding to that which God was saying and interacting with the real God and entering into this life of blessing. And Paul says the Gentiles were part of that story. How so? Because part of what God promised him was that he would be made a great nation, but not a nation that would sort of live in this self-reflective way turned in on itself, sort of angled only towards its own good, but would actually be a nation that exists as a tree of life, a blessing for all of the earth. N.T. Wright says that what had happened in the story of Israel is that the blessing got in a traffic jam because Israel couldn't live the law any more than you and I can live the law. Here, they want to move back to Torah. But Paul says that's not how the blessing was promised, and it's not how the blessing came into existence in our world. It ultimately comes to a place of fulfillment in the person of who Jesus is. So get out of the traffic jam. Come back to thinking about the story of Jesus. So bewitched, blessing, now belief. How do we enter this life of faith, right? This space of living the life of the Holy Spirit. In verses 10 to 14, Paul begins to unpack that for us. And he begins, first of all, to just simply say that for all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse. Okay, so you want to go back to Torah. You want to go back to the law. Well, let's think about where that gets you. It gets you to the traffic jam. It gets you even worse than that to a kind of dead end. It gets you to this space in which you're only left with curse. Think about the, something like the Ten Commandments, for example, which is part of the Old Testament law, of course. The law is given in that regard to a people that are delivered, right, <laughs> out of slavery and brought into a place of the promised land. And so almost immediately, God begins to sort of enter this process of changing Israel, right, of helping their imaginations to sort of be enlarged for what life could be. So you can imagine if you've lived in trauma, if you've lived in oppression, you've lived under some period of suffering for a long time, in this case, the trauma of slavery. What do you know how to do and be in the world except reactive? And so what the law begins to do in its best possible way is it's a summary, right, of the, of the good life. It's a summary of the vision that God wants Israel to be motivated by and captivated by as they begin to think about what is this work that they've been called to do in the world. The law, Jensen goes on to say, is the summary of the good life. 
It's a gesture toward vision. No killing, no theft, no sexual infidelity, no envy. No envy. When was the last time you envied? For me, it was this morning sometime. A community characterized by familial piety and deep worship of the real and living God. You see, law in this sense isn't like a set of rules. It's guidance. It's a roadmap. It's a vision that is meant to enlarge our imagination. But that isn't how Paul here is sort of developing our own imagination for law or how it might be used even in a Christian tradition. Rather, here Paul is bluntly concerned and maybe even angry about the way in which the people of God want to forget the centrality of Jesus as the summation, as the trajectory, as the endpoint, the fulfillment of law. And so he bluntly just says, if you want to treat the law as ultimate, you're only left with disappointment. You're only left with curse because you're living with the law in this previous brand of it being attached to the lie that you can have a happiness without God. Paul wants us to wake up to that reality. So think for just a moment. Sometimes in the context of worship, we do we offer or we remember how Jesus summarized the law, right? And you know that summary of the law. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and being, right? And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when I say that to you, when I call to mind those, that summary that Jesus gives, where does your mind go with that? So on the one hand, I can easily hear it and say, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where we loved God with perfection and we loved neighbor with perfection. Wouldn't that just be a beautiful world? But almost immediately when I hear the summary of the law, or I think about the summary of the law, or look more specifically at instances of the law, right? My heart condemns me because I begin to think and realize, well, I didn't do that this week. I certainly didn't do it well. There are lots of gaps that I notice between the aspirations of the law, the vision that it holds out for human life, and the way I actually live everyday life. Law is a dead end in some way. It doesn't take you into the life that you want. It can't. It's powerless. It can only expose. It can only expose the vision on the one hand and the gaps on the other. And Paul gets that. Notice in verses 13 and 14 how he begins to unpack this. He quotes a pretty important text for Jewish, the Jewish community out of Deuteronomy chapter 21 where you know, Moses or the writer of Deuteronomy says that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now think about that for just a moment. We live in a moment where we have made crosses really beautiful. Right? We, you know, some of you probably are wearing a cross today. You may be wearing a cross today. Right? We, we're, we're not like offended by the cross. It's, it's pretty. It reminds us in a good way that we belong to Jesus and things like that. Right? But in the moment, think about what the cross meant in society at the moment. If you were on the Roman side of the world, of which all these Gentiles were, right? the cross is a fitting death for what? The treasonous. That's what it's used for. 
It's a horrific form, a violent form of death that is torturous in, in profound ways, and it fits someone who's guilty of treason. And if you're inside of the Jewish community, the, is, the, 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 the cross is similarly grotesque. But it's because it is a fitting death for someone who's cursed by God. Someone who has lived a life of blasphemy against God. And here is Jesus who takes the cross to himself because he becomes a curse for us. God in person in our world, Jesus, reveals the depths of God's heart, his absolute refusal to let you and to let me live beneath the lie that we could find a happiness that doesn't include him. The cross becomes the way in which he moves us away from the space of being bewitched, caught up in the spell of that lie, that we might see the extravagance of his love and open our hearts to him. In Christ, he draws the full weight of human sin to his own story, to his own self. Jesus gets beneath the full weight of the blasphemy and where it should all rightfully end in death. He becomes the scapegoat for all of the wrong ways in which we live in the world and everyone else lives in the world. And he absorbs that awful ending into himself when he dies. Jesus, who only ever loved, Receive the curse that marks human life as if it were his own curse. Verse 14, so that in Christ, the blessing of God's promise to Abraham might come to all peoples, might flow towards us, not just to the Jewish family, but to the Gentile family as well, in all of its diversity, and that we would know that this is by faith and not works of the law. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, he writes in a beautiful little book called Where God Happens, and these are lessons and theological reflections that he offers us on a very old Christian tradition and, you know, family, the, the, the desert fathers and mothers. And he's sort of unpacking how did they live the life of faith as they retreated into the desert spaces. Like, what, what is that all about? Read the book. You'll learn a little bit. But there's this beautiful place where he just simply says this. He says, the church is a community that exists because something has happened that makes the entire process of self-justification irrelevant. God's truth and mercy have appeared in concrete form in Jesus. And in his death and resurrection have worked the transformation that only God can perform, told us what only God can tell us, that he has already dealt with the dread consequences of our failure so that we need not labor anxiously to save ourselves and put ourselves right with God. The church's rationale is to be a community that demonstrates this decisive transformation as really experienceable. You collectively, are a sermon in shoes. You collectively, when we gather for worship, when we scatter from worship and we're in our homes and you're in the workplace and we're alongside of neighbors, we're meant to live in the very presence of God who loves us in such a way that when you encounter your neighbor, they see God. 
They encounter the truthfulness of who Jesus is. And so Paul here in this particular moment of the history of the church and its mission in the world is really angry because the story that's being told isn't Jesus' story. It's something else. He wants to move us away from this drift to a place where our hearts are open to Him so that we actually demonstrate that this decisive transformation by God's presence is something that is available not just to us privately or in our heads, but with us, towards us in everyday life. That's the hope that we all need. Let me close with a story. So my son, who's now 27 years old, so I can safely tell stories about him. I guess that's sort of the truth, unless he tunes in and he might be embarrassed. So when he was 10, let's go back a long ways. I was a pastor in Philadelphia, pretty new one. I'd been there. We planted a church. And I remember driving back from his middle school, and uh, it was... October, actually. In fact, it was the last week of October, and the 31st was approaching. And so he was curious about, you know, what we were going to do. And he was particularly curious because some kids at school, and he went out to a suburban school. We lived in the city of Philadelphia. As he's out at this suburban space, they start talking about mischief night. You know, they're not talking about trick-or-treating. They're talking about doing some bad stuff, right? And so Tucker is, like, in the backseat of the car. We're all driving home, and he says, hey, Dad, have you ever heard of mischief night? And I said, yeah, I know what Mischief Night is. Don't do it. (laughs) Little law. Sometimes it's necessary in parenting, right? Don't do it. And I, you know, we begin to talk. He says, but Dad, the kids in the school. And I said, yeah, but they don't live in West Philadelphia. You live in West Philadelphia, Tucker. So I let go of it and just assume he's sort of imbibed this wisdom of the law that I've offered and extended his way so graciously as his father I love him. And so it's about four in the afternoon on Halloween, and I'm sitting in my upstairs. Our home had a a little office upstairs in our home. And I'm sitting there, as I would on Saturdays, working on a sermon. I think I even did that yesterday. So I'm, I'm doing that, sort of putting some finishing things together on it, and Tucker comes in. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon, so it's not even night yet. He sneaks into my office. He just says, hey, Dad, can we talk? And I said, sure, let's talk. He said, no, not, not here, right? Not with you distracted by the computer. Let's go over there. Let's go in this other room and talk. And I'm thinking, oh boy, what's going on? So we go in the other room and he begins to say, well, you remember how you told me not to do mischief night? I'm thinking, it's only afternoon, Tucker. He says, well, I did it. And I got caught by a neighbor. And the neighbor He began to tell me the story. The neighbor had been a real jerk, actually. He wasn't very kind or generous or patient. He really scared my son, right? And so I'm, of course, frustrated with that, too. And I just sort of saw this as an appropriate moment, a teachable moment, right? You ever had those where you just double down? And so I began to launch into Tucker. I, I don't know what to say to you. I, I am, I, I might even throw my hands up in the air. I just have no idea, like, how could I have made this more clear? How could I have sort of dispensed wisdom more wisely? Right? I mean, that, that's what's happening in my head, right? And I just 
go on. And then I just think, and Tucker's, you know, tears are streaming down his eyes because he's just scared. He has no idea what's going to happen to him, not by me or maybe it's by the neighbor that he's really worried about, but he's just there. And I just thought, well, let's just, let me just make sure you've gotten the lesson in, son. So, hey, I don't know what more I could do. And he just looks at me and says, Dad, I need you to hug me. I need you to hug me. You see, what he needed was relationship. What he needed to know was that I was actually there and that I loved him and that I cared for him, that my wisdom was for him. I still can't think about that without getting teary because it was just this incredible moment in which I'm like, yeah, my heart's messed up. I leave the God that loves me. And I double down in all these other things that I think are going to bring joy and happiness to my life. So Beck... Go on, dismiss Tucker, we pray, we talk, we go apologize, we do all those things that the law might require. And uh, I'm back working on the sermon, and I thought, well, why do I have such a tiny view of God? Why do I imagine God is like me in my most legalistic moment? Why do I imagine God looks at me and says, caught you? Gotcha. I don't know what to say to you, Tuck, anymore. I don't know how to make it more clear. Why don't I imagine God in that soft, generous moment when I just let go of the law and I embraced my son? Why don't I think of God that way? But that is the God that we've come to. He's the God who embraces us. He's the God who loves us. He's the God who on the cross of Jesus reveals that he will let nothing stand between us. Faith is when we open our hearts up to the truthfulness of who this God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And we just grasp at it. In just a few minutes, we'll come to the Lord's table, and there's a wonderful prayer that we sometimes pray at communion. It's the prayer of humble access, in which we're just very honest in that moment that we're unworthy, right? That there's an unworthiness about us, that we can't make ourselves worthy. I can't make myself able to be at that table. There's nothing I could do because... When I hear the summation of the law, I didn't, I didn't live that way this week, and neither did you. But there's that other side of that beautiful piece of the prayer, right? When we just come back and we say, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to show mercy. You are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Do you believe that? That the God that we've gathered to worship this morning is the one whose character is always to have mercy. And the way he has revealed that ultimately is when the promise became a person, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and Jesus was crucified, and he became cursed for us, so that what you and I might see in that moment is like, whoa, you are the Son of God. 
You loved God. You loved neighbor. You loved me. By faith, he invites us to open our hearts to him, our deepest selves to the action of God and Jesus on the cross so that we are a people who are constantly, daily, momently receiving the mercy of God so that when we're interacting with one another, whether it's in the kitchen later this afternoon or around television or you're out playing some sports or you're walking or you're doing whatever or tomorrow when you're at work or you're in school or you're bumping into real people or you're in the traffic of Northern Virginia, God bless you that you remember I am a recipient of mercy that has come to me in Jesus Christ. How do I live in love like that? That's the calling that he places upon the church, that we would demonstrate that reality. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we continue in our time of worship, that you would help us to behold the beauty of our dear Savior, Jesus, that it would be marvelous words that our Savior died for us that we would see in Jesus the demonstration of the depth of your love, that you only always reach out to us in mercy. Meet us this morning, we ask, and help us in Jesus' name. Amen.